Can you hear us? Can you hear me? Yes, very well. Okay, yes. beautiful. That's good news. <laughs> sorry. sorry, I've been scrambling with my headphones. No worries. Hello, listeners. I'm Eliza. And I'm Nick. And today we talked to Dr. Marlene Laruel, who is a historian, sociologist, and a professor at the George Washington University School of International Affairs, as well as the director of their liberalism studies program. We had a great conversation today about the concept of liberalism and its spread across Eastern Europe and Central Europe. Hope you enjoyed the listen. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies and the William P. Clemens Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Laura Well. I believe that today we're going to have a great conversation about um, illiberalism and the trends in Eastern Europe and and maybe even Western Europe. I know that uh, I know that it's a, a big topic nowadays with with the the rise of authoritarian governments and and the conflicts that that has sparked. So just to start us off, what is illiberalism? What <laughs> what is it? Uh, what what does it entail? What does it mean? Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. And yeah, first great question. Of course, it's a, it's a new term in liberalism and as every new concept, but also sometimes old concept. It's a very contested concept. It's still waiting for its kind of definition and it has several possible definition of way of, of uh, uh, growing. I see illiberalism, at least that's the way I want to frame it as a, a kind of cluster of ideology, right? So it has some flexibility. It has some inner coherence, but also flexibility. So a cluster of ideology that are challenging liberalism. And this liberalism that is challenged can be very different. It can be political liberalism, economic liberalism, societal liberalism, geopolitical liberal world order. So it's getting challenged, mostly based around two key arguments. One is the need for sovereignty, and it can be political sovereignty, economic sovereignty, cultural sovereignty, and the idea that we should reinforce or protect traditional hierarchy. And here also hierarchy can be the gender one, the sexual one, the, the, the family one, the nation one, right? So you can see that in that definition, illiberalism, it may overlap with conservatism, far-right, reactionary politics, with religion on some aspects. So it has a broad kind of spectrum. But there is a growing literature also telling us, be careful, because the way you divide or the way you oppose liberalism and illiberalism is problematic because you would have a wall world of leftist literature that would say, well, we think that liberalism itself, the way it exists in the contemporary Western hemisphere, right, that neoliberalism has been producing illiberal practices. And so it's not one opposing the other, but that contemporary liberalism, because it is economically neoliberal, is also producing some form of illiberalism, and therefore one is not opposing the other, but one is the product of the other. So you see that depending on the definition you want to have, you will find different kind of uh, way of, of framing it. And I think that's what is interesting with that concept, is that it forces us to rethink what do we define as the liberal societal order that many people considered as, you know, the obvious one, but it's not so obvious and it can get challenged. And that's what we see now.
So one of the things that you mentioned was that um, focus on challenging or focus on reinforcing, predicting, protecting traditional hierarchies, right? But um, something I've actually, I read in one of your articles, something that I've noticed in my own research is that a lot of these illiberal movements that we're seeing right now are actually grassroots, right? They're coming from below. And there's this narrative about that kind of resurgence. It, 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 it kind of coexists with populism in some senses, right? So something that I'm actually really interested in, and I'd love to hear more about is the question of how these more grassroots narratives, first of all, are being propagated and also how they interact with institutions, with hegemonic institutions, with these hierarchical agents, et cetera. Yeah, I think you have, you have both top-down and bottom-up phenomena meeting, right? You have a supply side and a demand side. And usually the literature is looking at the supply side. Right, we look at Viktor Orban, Putin, Erdogan, Netanyahu, at those who Marine Le Pen, Matteo Salvini, at the political leader that we identified as illiberal, and how they kind of offer. They have a political offer that then get uh, selected or not. But I think it's really interesting to look at the grassroots aspect, right, at the demand side. Why is that meaningful for people? Why? Why do people feel like? kind of law and order, tradition, stability, you know, normativity makes sense. And I think at least for me, it's much more fruitful because it's really sending us in the direction for research about, you know, what people find destabilizing in the current liberal order. And I think you have both, you know, social economic aspects that are to be taken into consideration. You know, what are the social groups that feel threatened? that feel diminished, that have grievances, that have resentment. And one way to express that is to have a kind of illiberal uh, strategies. But you can also look at the more, you know, the, the change in the media ecosystem that is pushing people to access more easily than before, maybe some illiberal offers. So I'm really interested in this kind of grassroots aspect. And as you were saying, there is a grassroots, there are grassroots illiberal entrepreneurs they are grassroots civil society actors, even if we can discuss the how they are civil and so on, depending on the definition we have. So you have all these kind of grassroots movement that I think are really important to capture because we need to understand that for many people, law and order, conservative values, whatever it means, you know, and a kind of stability, predictability, tradition, knowing where people stand, that everybody has a place and a role and a status in the system and that shouldn't change, is telling us a lot about the, the, the feeling of uncertainty. And I think the more we live in a world, you know, it's changing fast, it's very immediate, everything is kind of all the lines, everything is blurry, everything can be transformed, everything can be deconstructed. I mean, it's not an easy process to go through. I mean, if you belong to kind of, you know, intellectual elites, you can probably deal with that. But for many people, it's pretty destabilizing and people need to feel, you know, at least something are secured and stable <laughs> to be able to project themselves. So I think it's important to take into consideration that kind of grassroots aspect. Well, and I, I, I'm immediately struck by kind of at the beginning of, of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, the confusion in Western media about um, symbols of the Russian Empire being next to symbols of the Soviet Union and kind of these this mix this mismatch or, or mixture of them. But, but obviously, if you take illiberalism conceptually, that mixture makes perfect sense because this is kind of reaching into history for a challenge 
to a, a new liberal order that that they feel has kind of let them down. And I mean, if you look at the 90s and that experience in Russia, especially, I mean, it, that illuminates it very well. Yeah, I think the Russia is, of course, a, a fascinating case because it has experienced all the forms of liberalism at the same time in the 90s, right? The political one, the economic one, and the geopolitical one. And therefore, it has backlashed, in a sense, the first and very radically, first from the grassroots and then from the top, right? With then after the Putin's regime kind of building on this uh, um, illiberal tradition. But yeah, as you said, the, the, the more you experience things in a very abrupt way and then you lose predictability and stability, the more natural it seems to have a kind of conservative backlash where part of the society is asking for some stability and predictability. And then it gets constructed as a political ideology by the regime that is kind of sent back to the population through, through state media, through history textbook. And what you mentioned about the, 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 the fact that we still find in the West paradoxical to have both Tsarist symbol and Soviet symbol. But if you see from the Russian side, they are linked by the fact that it's all statist symbol, right? That when the state is strong, things are going well. <laughs> and the state can be imperial or Soviet or Putinist. That doesn't matter. What matters is the state is strong, Russia is strong. The state is weak, Russia is weak. And so that's the way the regime has been able to build this kind of historical continuity that go beyond ideological division, but that are making sense for a lot of Russian citizens indeed. I think another kind of interesting example of this that I've been looking at, I mean, to draw my own <laughs> research area in a little bit, is um, I've been looking at Poland and there's this really, really, really strong narrative uh, of Polish nationalism, the Polakatolic character, right? This like glorification of the nation specifically as this like last bulwark of Christianity in Europe. And that's something that's been narrativized a lot, especially by Prawe Sprawiedliwość for the last, what, eight years, right? But something that I've noticed that's really, really kind of interesting and still confounds me is this assertion or claiming of grassroots identity by people who are absolutely in power, but they still like to claim this kind of grassroots identity, you know, and that's something I find really, really interesting and obviously very effective. Yeah, I think that's a strategy of, of many liberal leaders, and that's where they match with the populist definition, right? That they always find a way to say they are part of the grassroots and the people, again, the corrupt elites, while on many aspects they are part of the elites, Right. We, so you mentioned the Polish case. Of course, the obvious cases would be Trump, right? Saying he's not part of the establishment, right? <laughs> he's clearly uh, on some form or some definition of the establishment part of it. But think also Marine Le Pen in France, who is always presenting herself as outside of the political establishment because she didn't finish one of the, you know, the big school for technocrats, but she belongs to one of the richest family in France, right? So you can always find this element. So there is always, and that's where indeed you have a populist aspect to always try to look like, you know, the the the, the grounded, rooted in local realities kind of figure that knows how to talk to kind of average citizen and always as a way to dissociate. So the good patriot that is rooted in its genuine environment from the cosmopolitan, urbanized, globalized elite that likes to live in a very, you know, denationalized 
world. So that's, I think, the kind of the binary they try to build. It, it's almost a contradiction. Uh, I've heard it referred to as kind of a the emergence of a nationalist international, but but maybe if we think of it as an illiberal international, because uh, I, 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 I seem to remember Steve Bannon, uh, who was kind of this infamous illiberal character, referring to the reading, you know, Julius Evola and and Alexander Dugan and kind of reaching across borders. So so is there sort of a shared like intellectual base? Is there kind of this intellectual genealogy happening between these different movements? Yeah. So I think if we look at illiberal political and intellectual movements, then we have shared genealogy. They read the same author. So that's one thing. They read the classic conservative and they read the new rights. You know, the Alain de Benoit, the German conservative revolution and all their kind of more current version. So they have a shared doctrinal stock that you can find in the U.S., in Europe, uh, uh, in Russia. And then you have transnational connection that are genuine, right? People travel, they visit each other, they talk on Zoom, they have conferences in person or virtual. Uh, you have exchange of money, you have financial support, right? We know a lot about Russia's support to the European far right, but the American far right has been funding <laughs> its European counterpart a lot also. And we have this kind, so that's why it's really interesting because the geopolitical line of divide that we tend to imagine are not always there. Think Viktor Orban. He is largely a pro-Russian figure. But all the intellectual circle around him that are framing Hungary as this kind of Christian, you know, last white Europe Christian country, they are all connected to the U.S., and they are really, so there is a very deep also transatlantic American-Hungary connection that is not contradictory with the fact that uh, uh, um, uh, Hungary is playing a pro-Russian card, right? So it's much more complex than we imagine. So you have all this intellectual and personal and financial connection that are indeed existing. Of course, I mean, they are also divided on many aspects and competing with each other and so on, but but that's there. And I think you have clearly, so of course, Russia was influential, especially before February 24th. Since then, it has been much more <laughs> difficult for Russia to con to con continue the, the, the honeymoon with the European far right. The U.S., far-right or illiberal movement are really reaching out to their European counterpart a lot, right? And then you have kind of ideological affinities, right? You have those who are more kind of German, Nordic-oriented. You are those who are more Catholic, you know, like Italy, Spain, Portugal, Latin America with a more kind of Catholic uh, a version of it. So all these transnational connections, they exist. So it's both a shared doctrinal stock and intellectual connection and, and mutual borrowing. Something on this note that I'd kind of like to mention, you mentioned briefly that you, you identified Orban as kind of a pro-Russia player, right? Something that really kind of intrigues me, which is a, you know, developing situation, I think, is these kind of fault lines that we're seeing develop in Central Europe related to the war in Ukraine, related to different countries and different governments' alignments that they've chosen. As you mentioned, Orban is very pro-Russia. I believe the Serbian government is as well. And then you've got these other countries like really Poland, again, is the one I'm most familiar with, who's been very, of course, very outspoken against Russia. That's actually kind of a pivotal piece of the of the Polish rhetoric. I don't really, I don't really know. I think it would be too big of a question to say like, what do you think is 
going to happen with these fault lines. But <laughs> no, no, but I think it's a good point because ideological line of divide don't overlap with geopolitical line of divide, right? You can have the Polish and Hungarian narrative that are very close to each other ideologically, and they are geopolitically on two different lines. One is for Russia and the other is super pro-NATO transatlantic. Look at Meloni. Meloni has been really now super pro-Ukrainian, anti-Russian and very transatlantic. Marine Le Pen, even if she has tuned down her pro-Russian stance, is still more on a kind of continental Europe against NATO kind of narrative. So I think on the contrary, it's interesting because for years we really tend to see the illiberal rise in Europe as being necessarily pro-Russian. And I think we see now that it's much more complicated than that, that it doesn't overlap. Right, the same as we have now with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where the line don't overlap necessarily, and those you may have imagined siding for one side or the other are not necessarily like that. So I think it's a much more fragmented uh, world that we have to face now. It's not like you know, like the, the good democracy are on one side, the bad one are on the other side, and the line of divide ideologically and geopolitically are overlapping. It's not. It's much more complicated. And to talk about fragmentation and and, and things, especially at the kind of periphery of the former Soviet Union. War in Ukraine, the biggest example, I, I, I think it's it's kind of indisputable that this is a, a challenge, illiberalism versus uh, liberalism. But but I'm also thinking of, of kind of the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, where you have kind of a, a revanchist Azerbaijani state uh, versus kind of a, a more westward-facing Armenian uh, administration. Uh, so do you think that, that kind of these ideological fault lines are, are starting to cause con- active conflict uh, in, in certain areas? Well, I would be more nuanced than that, because I think you can indeed read the two conflict as having this kind of, you know, more democratic versus more authoritarian uh, regime, which is the case. I mean, yeah, by the, yeah, of course, Ukraine and Armenia are more democratic than Russia and Azerbaijan. But I don't think the cause of the conflict is the ideology. I think the cause of the conflict are really deeply anchored identity projects and kind of strategic projects, right? So for Russia, it's both an identity project about being a great power, having influence over its neighbor. If the neighbor doesn't want to be in the Russian orbit, then the neighbor become illegitimate and therefore that justify the invasion. The Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict, it's also an old, it has historical, root, root, historical roots. It's an identity project for both countries. And for me, that's more important. That is what really triggered the wars. And then, of course, you have the political line of divide that plays. But for me, this line of divide, I mean, it's not the, the core cause of the conflict, right? I think the cause of the conflict is really identity projects that have been built by these different societies. And then if they would be ideologically closer to each other, we would still may have the conflict. And the fact that you have a war for identity project also forced them to become, to ideologically identified. I mean, I think... For very long, you know, the Ukrainian government could have been, I mean, it was always more democratic than, than Russia, but it was corrupt, it was, you know, kleptocratic and so on. But once you are at war with Russia and it's really become part of your national identity, then the push toward becoming really genuinely more democratic, because that's where you want to reach Europe, then it's become part of your nation building. But it's 
it's not because you were democratic first. It's because you get invaded and then your kind of solution is to move toward Europe. The same. I mean, of course, the Pashinian government was always more democratic than the Aliyev one. But for very long, Pashinian was working pretty well with Russia, right? And the Aliyev government for years was a pretty Western-oriented and anti-Russian one. So I don't think this kind of the ideological aspect arrive in a secondary position compared to the strategic and the identity uh, uh, conflictuality. On that note, if we could take like a little flip from talking about this ingenuine to, to perhaps more genuine democratization, something that I think would be really interesting to talk about is how liberal regimes use the outward performance of liberalism as tools to kind of garner support, preserve their own power, preserve relationships, maybe. So whether that's, you know, elections, referendums, or, you know, things like using the language of human rights, what are some ways that we see that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a growing literature exactly on that to say, okay, contemporary authoritarian regimes are smarter <laughs> than they are, the, the previous one, right? They are not clashing directly in terms of language, in terms of their own narrative against democracy, human rights. On the contrary, they appropriate the narrative, right? And they try from the inside to change the definition of what is human rights what is the referendum, right? What is democracy? So it's a very, it's a much more complex strategy to react on the side of liberal democracy because the language itself becomes very difficult to interpret, right? So I think that's a strategy that indeed has been growing both domestically, which also tell you that to be legitimate, even in an authoritarian regime, you still need to tell your society that you are democratic and you have election and that matters. Right. Even if everybody knows they may be fake and, and not free and fair, but still you play according to these rules. Right. And then on the international scene also, it's a way to penetrate all the international institutions, trying to change the language of the laws to kind of transform it. There have been great studies done on the way the Russian Orthodox Church has been first criticizing the human rights definition and then accepting it and trying to transform it from the inside. So there have been, there is a lot of learning processes, right, from authoritarian and or liberal regime in, in appropriating the, the liberal uh, languages. I think what we should be looking at is not the, I mean, it's important to look at the way they appropriate the language, but what we should check that should be the kind of criteria is you know, what is happening with the kind of check and balances, court independence, media independence, civil society. So if you put the respect for plurality at the core element, you can usually pretty easily move away from language appropriation and clearly identify, you know, who is kind of promoting plurality in a society and who is afraid of plurality. Yeah, we saw we saw that that kind of Russia is is more than happy to run elections in in kind of occupied territories. And you, it's in, indeed I think that they've run now now two rounds of not only the first referendum but also the second uh, elections. But I, I, I think that it's very interesting, this kind of ideological mobilization of, of, of these, these kind of trappings. I, I don't know. And we know that Putin has used the language of decolonization, which is, is kind of originates in, in academia itself, uh, or originates in kind of these larger, what would be called liberal discussions. And how do you think that the kind of that language is used? 
Yeah, the, the, the reframing of Russia, the anti-colonial power, I think is really fascinating, right? And, and it has a long history, in fact. It's not something that is new. Of course, you can immediately think like, well, Soviet Union was also an anti-imperial power and, and fighting with the third world, etc. So they have that legacy. But even before, I mean, the Slavophile already in 19th century, we're also saying Russia is colonized by Europe, the Romano-Germanic Europe. It was not the Anglo-Saxon at that time. It was the Romano-Germanic one. So you had that among the first Eurasianists. We're also saying the way Russia can de-Westernize, de-Europeanize is by realizing that European, European identity is a colonial normative process and Russia needs to exit it. So it has a long tradition and the fact that it's re-emerging now since the, the, the full-scale invasion is really interesting because I think it's both a reply to the decoupling with the West and the kind of the, the Russian political establishment really being kind of cutting links with the West, and it's a way to talk to the global South, right? So it's this rebranding of Russia as the global South power, which reached back to the, the kind of the Soviet legacy in trying to say, okay, we may not be perfect. We may be our own colonial power in our own world, but we all together are fighting against a bigger imperialism, which is the Western one. And I think on that, we should recognize that Russia has been able to frame things in a pretty successful way and to reach out to global audiences in a in a much more efficient way than what we were imagining at the beginning. And here also, it should be clearly interpreted. It's not that the global South is pro-Russian for the sake of being pro-Russian. It's for the sake of being anti-US or anti-European, right? And it's this idea that Russia is a necessary counterweight to the US, doesn't mean Putin was right in invading Ukraine and in the global south, there have been a lot of criticism of Putin's decision. But at the same time, they are not ready to apply sanction because no one in the global south would like to see a war that would be kind of dominated by the US or by the West. So I think Russia has been pretty smart in trying to craft this new anti-colonial narrative, which is very much a rightist Right. It's a decolonization coming from the right in the Russian uh, side. And it's also talking to a lot of conservative, you know, Muslims, for, for example, because in the Muslim world, you also have a very strong anti-colonial language also coming from the side of conservative values. So they have been able to find resonance element in many different uh, uh, countries. So I think it's, it's a pretty interesting construction. this topic my I, I think, I mean, my perception of kind of average person's quote unquote understanding of Russia right now contemporarily is they're aware, you know, of Russia's war on Ukraine. That's, I think that's, you know, pretty globally known at this point. Everyone's pretty clear on where we stand on that. But something I'd really like to do is just take a step back and talk about really what does Russia's global influence really like truly look like today? Yeah, that's a great point. And we don't have so many research done on that, right? We have public opinion research, but that's usually very broad. It's not very detailed because, the, I mean, the world is big and the global south is <laughs> large. So so we have broad idea. There were the really interesting surveys uh, uh, or compilation of surveys, kind of big data type of surveys done in the summer of 2022 
where you could see really largely Russophile public opinion very visible in French-speaking Africa and in uh, Southeast Asia. So that was really like, you know, 60 to 70% of the public opinion being pro-Russian. And then you have more media and, you know, Latin America, Middle East, like more half-half type of support. And then, of course, in Europe, pro-Russian position really collapsed. You can still identify them, right? So you would have Hungary, Serbia, Slovakia, potentially some part of the public opinion in, in Bulgaria, some part in Turkey, some part in Israel, at least before the, the October 7th uh, uh, terrorist attack and the fact that the conflict is also now getting indirectly connected to, to the war in Ukraine. But globally in the West, of course, Russia's pro-Russian public opinion largely collapsed. But you can really see Middle East and Latin America half-half and then these two big spots of, of uh, French-speaking Africa, which is telling you, right? Because if French-speaking Africa is super pro-Russian, that they are not that they are pro-Russian because they love pro-Russia, that because they are pro-Russian because they hate the French, right? So it's really the mirror game that makes Russia successful. That said, Russia is playing pretty well economically, pretty well by passing sanctions, pretty well in, in developing economic ties. You know, Rosatom, for example, is really successful or largely successful at selling, you know, nuclear stuff. And so, so there are still pockets of the Russian economy that work well with the global south. So I think that Russia had that capacity, both ideologically and economically, are, are kind of decoupling with the West and finding niches to replace. It's never super working super smoothly, but it works enough to make the country resisting pretty well the, the sanction pressures. I think another really interesting contingent to discuss, who might be a little bit more fringe, perhaps less actually influential, but something I think it's important to take into account is um, this contingent contingent of U.S. evangelicals who will really connect with Putin, with Russia on a moral level as this kind of moral savior. Absolutely. And it really exists since at least a decade, right? It's only even more now, 15 years, I would say, where really you have this kind of honeymoon at least you had a honeymoon at the beginning. Then, of course, depending, I mean, first Crimea annexation, then the war, the full-scale invasion have kind of changed partly things, but you still have indeed part of the U.S. Christian right that really had this kind of admiration for Putin, at, you know, the strong man, the kind of traditional value, traditional masculinity man, uh, very clear on what he wants for uh, uh, Russia in terms of uh, LGBT uh, rights and so on. So indeed, this evangelical right has a kind of uh, uh, influence. And there is, and it's, and what is interesting here also is that it has a grassroots aspect, right? There is a growing number of U.S. evangelicals who got disappointed with U.S. churches and who are converted to orthodoxy. Being orth I mean, some are converting to kind of radical fundamentalist Catholicism also, but some are converting to orthodoxy, saying orthodoxy at the last version of Christianism that is resisting any kind of modernization. So it has also, a, I mean, it's very minority, but still, it's not only a kind of, you know, high level things. You also have a grassroots uh, uh, aspect to that, that indeed is fascinating. And the Russian Orthodox Church is also playing on that very much. 
So it's also something that served their interest to be seen as the kind of the last fortress of the real Christianism against other Christianism that got modernized and liberalized. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting that Putin actually recently spoke out against abortion rates in Russia, which Russia has traditionally, since Soviet times, has had a, a relatively high rate of, uh, of abortions per, per capita. But I, I think it's interesting, too, how there, there's been a turn almost to the Putin regime speaking uh, globally uh, in this kind of very rightward, illiberal way. But then when he speaks to a domestic audience, there's always the emphasis on the multi-ethnic and even kind of these Soviet conceptions of multinationality, which I think in, in, in certain cases, this is kind of how you can see maybe different kind strains of illiberalism or, or how it reacts in the domestic sphere versus the international one. Because I know that in the case of such as Orban's Hungary, it's very much a monoethnic understanding, whereas here maybe we see that, you know, this is, uh, this is multinational, multiethnic illiberalism. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point to make. The, the, the gap in narrative between what is sold to foreign, to external audience and what is produced for domestic audience has always been very important. And it's also that we tend not to, when you really look at what the regime, and the regime can mean both Putin and many people around him, like member of his government, to the Russian population, it's much more, it still has a modernizing and secular aspect that I think we tend not to want it to see because we look for the more radical statement, right? So they try to keep indeed the multinationality for sure. And in a sense, it even got reinforced by the war, which is very paradoxical, right? Because we see the war as this kind of revival of the Russian imperialism and this will of kind of negating the Ukrainian identity and absorbing it. So we see it as a kind of ethno-nationalist imperialism. But Putin has been talking about the multinationality of Russia really like really in a really inflated manner since the beginning of the the full-scale invasion. And as you were mentioning at the beginning, there is also now we see this radicalization in relation to abortion, right? So for very long, the regime was indeed pretty hardline on homosexuality and everything gender related, but pretty soft on abortion, right? There was always radical voices inside the government and inside, of course, the Russian Orthodox Church that were super anti-abortion, but the government was remaining pretty moderate in tradition with the kind of the, the Soviet heritage of allowing women, you know, like, like you are free of doing whatever you, you, you think you should be doing with your body. And that is indeed seems to be changing. And I think that's the effect of the war, right? Is that it's radicalizing narrative. It's making more legitimate the more radical narrative, the one coming from the more radical fringes, including the Russian Orthodox Church. And also because the war accelerates a vision of the nation as a kind of biological body, right? The more you need men to be ready to die, for the, the motherland, the more symbolically women have to take back the traditional role of producing new citizens, right? So you are kind of say, making more archaic, right? The gender identity, men go to die and women have the job to create new citizens, right? So I think that is accelerating, unfortunately, the, 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 the issue of abortion. And indeed, there have been several, uh, um, not only by Putin, but by the Minister of Health also several statements that seems to indicate that Russia may be moving toward a, a much more radical anti-abortion policy, which was not the case before.
actually that that kind of makes me think of, and I don't know, I don't know if this is really pre-existing in the Russian narrative specifically, but something that I've kind of noticed in my own research into liberalism is this this tool they call gender ideology, which I've noticed is very often a talking point of regimes or movements that could be called illiberal. And it's like, I mean, it's a conglomeration of they, they blame alternately and or universally. It's like feminism, abortion rights activists, gay rights activists, gender rights activists, and also allies. So, I mean, that's I think an extremely activating, I mean, it's kind of the battleground du jour, you know, like that's, that's the thing that's become the most embattled in, in international arguments, you could say maybe, especially earlier where we, how we were talking about language. I think the language around gender in, in international law, especially when it comes to organizations like the United Nations, the European Union, that's that's the kind of thing that's being argued, right? And that kind of brings it back to this core of morality and traditionalism that it often centers around. This idea of what's right, what's natural. Yeah, absolutely. Because because gender is the last frontier that you have, and it's the most personal one in a sense, right? It's really touching to to very sensitive element of very basic definition of <laughs> of who we are. So it has become the glue now of all this indeed liberal movement because they know it's a very easy way to polarize society and to create this kind of culture war. Right. So on that it's a it's an import from the US tradition of culture war. Either the US tradition has been historically gun and abortion. <laughs> well, guns is very specific to the US. There are not many countries when you can export <laughs> the kind of the guns debates because they don't have it. Abortion, yes, but you see not in every country. I mean, in Western Europe, the abortion debates, I mean, it can be reopening, but mm -hmm. it's still considered as a kind of something that, that you don't challenge anymore in a, such an open manner. But everything that is homosexuality and even more gender is really indeed the, the battle. And that's what, yeah, all of them and Putin and, and Orban and all the liberal leaders have been really using as the most kind of cliche element they want to use to decredibilize the, the, the liberalism at the kind of extreme, you know, perverted societal order. And indeed, as you said, the moralizing aspect is very important and it's very caricatural way of bringing the discussion on, on gender issues. And indeed, it's resonating with a large part of the population in a sense, right? That, I mean, the, the accepting the idea of gender fluidity is still things that are kind of accepting, you know, it's very generational and it's really for some societies, it's in the process of getting accepted and still, I mean, even look in this country, right? Or in, or in Western Europe, but for Central Eastern Europe from the Muslim world, it's still kind of seen as a very, you know, Western-centric debate that is so far away from the realities of the majority of individuals on the planet that it's easy to then kind of use that as the hammer you put on liberalism to denounce it. Yeah. Absolutely. So I have to admit that was kind of a teeing up question because <laughs> um, something that, I mean, this is like a huge, this is a huge question. You know, I feel like we could have a whole other episode about this question, but with this, you know, kind of narrative that constructs opposition to international organizations like the EU, the UN, et cetera. I mean, when faced with illiberal governments, illiberal activity that are working against cooperation, I mean, what should we do about this? You know what I mean? Like, what is there 
to do? Yeah, it's a tough question. Of course, all these policy questions are the most difficult because there is no easy solution, right? If there was one, we would have known <laughs> since a long time. There is, it's complicated because the EU system is by definition a complicated one because it has this kind of federal aspect. And at the same time, you need on some decision unanimity, which is almost important. I mean, the more the EU grows, the more it's difficult to get unanimity on everything. <laughs> and then you have a lot of check and balances that have been created precisely to avoid too radical decision, which means that it has also its kind of counter effect, which is that it becomes very difficult to take a radical decision, for example, against Poland or against Hungary. So at the end, the capacity of the EU to play with legal instruments, I mean, they have some financial instrument they can play on, but not a lot of legal instrument they can utilize against illiberal regime that would grow inside their own system. And then it has been very much targeting Poland and especially Hungary. But you can see how it's become more and more difficult, right? Because a lot of very important Western European countries have also strong liberal leader. I mean, what do you think Meloni would be voting against Orban? I'm not sure. What if Marine Le Pen, you know, she's not in power, but she could potentially. So how, and then look at the European Parliament. It's really has a growing number of EU deputies that are themselves Eurosceptic. So, so the instruments are getting very difficult to use. And I think there is a fear also of pushing too much on Hungary and having a backlash and suddenly having Orban declaring he's leaving the EU, which I don't think the EU can afford, right? I mean, having the Brexit was already super costly, but it had some logic for the UK to leave. But losing a country from Central Europe it's symbolically and just, you know, administratively on the way the EU is functioning, especially now in the context of the war, that would have a dramatic effect. And I think no one in Brussels wants to ever push Orban and corner Orban in a way that suddenly would declare his leaving. Right. So I think, unfortunately, it's also show the limits of what the EU can do. That's you can once you backlash, once you are inside the EU and you backlash against liberalism, well, you have a large space to do that, right? And then you can weaken the institution from the inside, which unfortunately is the case now. And I think that there is no tons of solutions to that, except that to try to target really the core of the issue. And I think that's something that Brussels has been trying to do, that how do we try to penalize the urban government without punishing Hungarian population, Right? Because you also don't want the population to lose faith in being a member of the EU. So how do you punish a government without punishing its population? And that's like here also the, the number of administrative or technocratic tools we have are not so numerous. both top-down and the bottom-up, you know, coexistence in a liberal movement. I suppose the next question I'd want to ask then is, you know, what on the more individual level is to be done? Is it just like, you know, spreading awareness, talking about it? Is that 
Is that what we do? Yeah, I think that's what many activists and civil society are doing, trying to spread awareness, you know, to trying to have programs to inform people. I think it's important. I think it's largely not enough because you have systemic issue that needs to be addressed if you want to avoid the, the, the main side of illiberalism. And by definition, systemic issues are the most difficult to address. Right? How do you address social economic inequalities and grievances right? that help, that create this kind of fertile soil? I mean, what do you do with neoliberal austerity measure if you know that they will have, they will be pushing for kind of illiberal solution? You need to reform the economic system. You need to reform the media ecosystem. You need to reform the fact that not only social media, social media, of course, but even television, and maybe not newspaper, but television and social media are very much better based on a commercial model that push for polarization, right? So see the debates currently in Europe about trying to get control over the big uh, um, social media firms. It's very difficult, right? How do you control algorithms that are pushing toward radical narrative, right? If Elon Musk is doing whatever he wants with <laughs> Twitter X, I mean, it will be very difficult. Look at pressure on Facebook. So all these systemic issues that create this fertile background for, for illiberalism, they are very difficult to tackle because they are really at the core of our own system. So we can always do awareness and, you know, media literacy and kind of civil civic education. It's always good. But I'm afraid it's not enough if there is no also in parallel a discussion on all these very painful aspects of, of uh, the way our societies are functioning, because that's what is helping a liberal system to, to grow also. Well, it seems to me that the only thing we can be certain of is that we're not going to wake up one day and illiberalism will be gone. So we're looking forward to more research and more work from, from you and, and your, your researchers and your team. And we want to thank you for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for the invitation and the discussion. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 